Club Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. Today we're going back to Barsoom, which of course was a name for Mars given by Edgar Rice Burroughs before he wrote Tarzan. You know, before there was Tarzan of the Apes, there was John Carter of Mars, and maybe eventually they're going to be releasing a movie about that. And I think they have to decide whether it's going to be all live action or live action and computer animation because of all the strange creatures. Anyway, we have our old friend Mac Tonys with us and a special guest, Robert Zubrin, who's author of a lot of interesting books, one of which is called How to Live on Mars, a trusty guidebook for surviving and thriving on the Red Planet. Now, this book is, I guess, part social commentary, part science fiction, part humor because there's a lot of funny things about it but then if you read into the humor you find so many truisms so robert how did you come to write a book of this sort well you know i've written uh straight and serious books about mars the case for mars which explains the technology and how we can uh, mount a human mars mission in our time but uh, i decided to take a more humorous approach though the lighter side of mars both as a way of getting more people interested in Mars, teaching a lot of science on Mars, but doing it in a real fun way, uh, and, but also creating a vision of what future human civilization on Mars might be like. And um, actually, my uh, the book I was reading while I was writing this book was Mark Twain's Roughing It, about his travels in the American frontier in the 1860s, the mining camps, the boom towns, the scam artists, as well as the brave pioneers, the real estate swindles and uh, the magnificent achievements all mixed up in one massive exuberant burst of human creativity and that's what i think it's going to be like on mars um the the, the book is a guide is, is set about a hundred years in the future and it's a guide to immigrants from an old hand and in the course of telling people new arrivals what works and what doesn't work and the gear to choose and the gear not to choose and how to get a job that won't kill you because many of the open jobs will that's why they're open uh how to make serious money in uh you know like a mining claim evaluation or real estate deals because the land can value can only go up if the place is terraformed and so forth to convey a vision of this uh an exuberant youthful branch of human civilization in the process of being born now robert in the description of the context of this uh, settlement on mars it, it's pretty obvious that much like politics plays such a critical role in how things play out on Earth, there's a very odd set of political dynamics happening on Mars. Do you think that your vision of this is perhaps almost too conservative? Do you think it might even be crazier than what you portray in the book? It might get a little crazy. Human beings have a way of finding ways, crazy <laughs> ways of doing things. And, uh, I mean, that's sort of what I tried to get into uh, a bit. You know, in other words, each chapter explains the science or technology of some area, but then I, I start investigating the more humorous sides of it, such as, you know, people talk about terraforming Mars, but what that would potentially mean, you know, for Martian uh, real estate salesmen, for example, and, and you know, the possibility of, of, of marketing future beachfront property on Mars and future sites <laughs> for hydroelectric dams. And now, how do you do beachfront property on Mars? Forgive my By ignorance. creating oceans. <laughs> okay. You create well, oceans, you'll have beachfront. <laughs> the issue, get... though, is where the beachfront is going to be. <laughs> Well, here, here's a question about terraforming, and, and excuse my ignorance in this, um, because I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the concept of terraforming another planet. Now, 
in doing a little bit of research about our atmosphere on Earth, it seems that there's a large part of our atmosphere that's held together basically by Earth's magnetic field. Mars does not have the kind of magnetic field that Earth does. Much weaker, extremely weaker. How do you get around that issue in attempting to terraform a planet? The lack like of magnetic field only causes an atmosphere to erode over billions of years. It's okay. not an issue from the point of view of time scales of interest to humans. It would be, I mean, yes, if we terraform Mars and did nothing, three billion years later, the atmosphere would be mostly gone for the reason that you just said. But from the point of view of human beings, a million years is as long as anyone is, is beyond people's interest in terms of duration. So th that would not be a consideration. So e extrapolating on basic levels of scientific understanding uh, on, on, on Earth, what is the reasonable time frame for the possibility of terraforming another planet? It, it, it's not 100 years, is it? Well, uh, part of it, some very substantial things could be done in less than 100 years. Not complete terraforming, that is true. But very substantial modifications, amazing modifications of Mars could be done. That is, what could be done on a time scale of 50 to 100 years is we could set up factories on Mars that produce artificial greenhouse gases, fluorocarbon gases that are thousands of times more potent as greenhouse gases than carbon dioxide is, and release them into the atmosphere, and this would warm the planet up around 10 centigrade. Now, if you did that, that warming itself would force massive amounts of carbon dioxide to outgas out of the soil where huge reserves are sponged in. Um, that would thicken the atmosphere possibly as much as 20 or 30 times over to be from being 1% as thick as Earth's, which is what it is now, to perhaps 30% as thick as Earth's, and it would enormously enhance the greenhouse effect we're trying to create, so much so that uh, the uh, tropical and temperate uh, latitudes of Mars would be warm enough for liquid water, and you'd also have enough air pressure to support liquid water. So uh, huge amounts of water that's now frozen into the soil as permafrost or ice would melt out and start to flow again. You know, there are dry riverbeds on Mars, and they would start to fill with water and flow and fill up the dry lakes and oceans on Mars. So, yes, there would be beachfront property on Mars, and there would be rain. And uh, the rain would destroy the peroxides in the soil uh, and uh, release a small amount of oxygen into the atmosphere, but also detoxify the soil as far as plants is concerned. Uh, so at that point, with a thick carbon dioxide atmosphere, liquid water, rain, the peroxides in the soil having been neutralized, uh, you could spread plants on the surface of Mars. There'd be vegetation. And um, the, uh, so you could create uh, regions of Mars with, with grasses and trees and flowers and all this. And, and, and they would start putting some oxygen into the atmosphere. Now, furthermore, the atmosphere while not breathable because it would be about 30% as thick as Earth, but mostly carbon dioxide, not breathable by people, breathable by plants, yes. Um, a human being on Mars at that point would no longer need a spacesuit. All he would need is breathing gear, like an Everest climber needs, um, and warm clothing. So pressure suits would be out, breathing gear would be in. Uh, you could create domed towns uh, of very large dimensions because you could fill them with uh, oxygen. If you took an atmosphere uh, that was 30% as thick as Earth's atmosphere and filled it two-thirds with oxygen and one-third nitrogen, which basically the atmosphere we had in the Skylab space station, uh, that would have the same oxygen percentage uh, uh, amount, rather, that we have on the surface of Earth at sea level today. People would be able to breathe that. 
So you could create domed settlements because there would not be a pressure difference between the inside and the outside. Um, so the domes could be just inflatables. Uh, it wouldn't have to be particularly strong. And um, so large uh, inhabitable areas for people and the outside of the planet would become habitable for plants. And as they put more and more oxygen in the planet's atmosphere, it would become breathable first by simple animals and then by things like insects and eventually uh, by mammals and humans. Uh, that would take a long time. Um, assuming uh, kinds of plants we have today and uh, human beings actively spreading them through conscious seeding programs, uh, it would take over a thousand years for there to be enough oxygen in the planet's atmosphere for people to breathe. On the other hand, genetically modified plants might be able to do it quicker. What about genetically modified human beings? One of the things that, reading the book, which by the way, uh, I found to be very entertaining. I really quite like it. And uh, one of the things that occurred to me, though, is that so many of the uh, assumptions in the book are based on humans as biological entities not having any significant amount of genetic engineering uh, in their reality. Uh, is that something that you specifically avoided? Well, I don't think there's going to be that much genetic change in humans over 100 years. And certainly not, I mean, some science fiction writers have talked about meeting Mars halfway, sort of partially terraforming Mars, as I've just discussed, and then modifying people so that they could breathe a thick CO2 atmosphere. Mm -hmm. To me, that seems improbable because um, we need oxygen at, even at the level of each individual cell. Okay, in other words, it, 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 not only are we oxygen-breathing animals, we're a colony of billions of oxygen-breathing cells. That's what we are. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, and, you, you know, so, I mean, to genetically modify people so that they're taller and thinner and more uh, adapted in their bone structure to Martian gravity, uh, I could believe that could happen, although I don't discuss that in the book. Uh, but... I could see that happening. That would not be that big a change. Uh, but to modify people at the cellular level to breathe carbon dioxide, that seems to me to be quite improbable. Well, perhaps not even to that extreme, but what about if we're talking about something like beings that are perhaps designed to withstand more solar radiation? I would assume that would also be a pretty significant issue, um, given that uh, you'd, you'd have a planet that has a much thinner atmosphere than Earth. And also, there's I, I, I don't know this, so I guess I'm asking this, um, you know the, the the role of the the ozone layer on the Earth is to keep a large amount of the solar radiation uh, from hitting us. How would how bad would that problem be on Mars? And is there a potential for affecting us in a genetic way to be able to have more ability to withstand the tremendous amount of solar radiation? That seems to me would be a, a pretty significant danger on the surface of Mars. Well, Mars actually, uh, well, first of all, sorry, it's ozone. Ozone protects the planet from ultraviolet, uh, right. not okay. hard radiation, but ultraviolet radiation. Um, the Mars atmosphere is only 1% as thick as Earth's, but it actually it has 2% the ozone layer, which is respectable given the fact that the atmosphere itself is so thin. So if we thickened up Mars's atmosphere, we'd probably get a pretty good ozone layer there, too. Mm -hmm. Now, we'd also, if we thickened up the atmosphere, we'd also shield out a lot of the hard radiation. But even before that, the amount of radiation you get per year on Mars is about 5 rem, uh, which is about the limit to a nuclear power plant worker here on Earth. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, 50 times the dose of, of, of an ordinary person on Earth living at sea level, but it's not... 
um, beyond the safety limit of, uh, of the people who work in such industries. Now, that said, um, it might well be the case that I don't know what genetic engineering uh, could be done to make people more resistant to cancers induced by radiation. I think mm -hmm. that's something uh, uh, that is of general interest here on Earth in, in, in more general terms to make people more resistant right. to cancer. Um, but um, And certainly, uh, if people were on Mars a long period of time, uh, natural selection would cause people to evolve uh, to be more resistant to um, radiation. So we'd become uh, Martians, more or less. Yeah. I mean, look, do you, do you know why black people are black? It's because they live in Africa. And you, you need more protection against solar radiation than you do if you're in Scandinavia. That's why Scandinavians are so pale. Mm -hmm, they no sure. longer need pigment adaptation. You know, in our Earth, we find uh, uh, darker people living in uh, the tropical regions, and, and that is a genetic modification that has occurred over thousands of years on Earth. And some of that would uh, uh, occur on Mars over time, naturally, and it could occur faster given our capability to do genetic engineer. Are you ready? To order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked? We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To get yours, go to our homepage at theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Select your size from the pop-up menu. Click Buy Now to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380, 800-715-4380, or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com, 1-800-715-4380. You are Luke Harris with Chiefs and Luke David Bailey. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Robert Zubrin, author of How to Live on Mars and a lot of other fascinating, fascinating books. And we also have Mac Tony's with us. Mac, you've been listening very calmly. 
and gently yes, to been, to what I've been Robert quite is content to listen to the like, terraformation, which is one of the things that very much fascinates me about uh, about planetary exploration. So why don't you kind of chime in here, and maybe you can generate some of the discussion from your end of it. I did when we were talking about uh, pigment, and um, and uh, I was wondering if if you if uh, if Robert had read it's an excellent it's a, actually the Hugo Award winning science fiction novel of 2006. It's called Spin by Robert Charles Wilson, and one of the, one of the ideas in the book is that the Earth is encapsulated by unseen alien forces in the temporal bubble where the rest of the universe uh, relatively relative to, relative to Earth is, is progressing much, much faster, like something like years are passing every second. And they find that they're able, because of this temporal gradient, they're able to send seeds, seed pods, and different kinds of uh, uh, phased, phased shipments of, of biomass to Mars. And because of the enormous amounts of time going by on Mars, they're able to terraform it. From an Earthling's perspective, it seems to take only days for observable uh, changes in, in Mars's atmosphere to occur. It's a really interesting idea. Um, obviously, the, the whole the whole time temporal thing is far far beyond our, our capabilities. But but he introduces some really um, interesting ideas as far as the actual terraformation process would proceed. I have a feeling you've probably done quite a bit of homework, but uh, one of the ideas is that uh, they finally sent humans after they reach reach a stage where the atmosphere is breathable and they can observe vegetation through telescopes, space-based telescopes. And they send people, and not a lot longer than that, they get an astronaut back from Mars, and he is, is, is notably um, different than the humans, the, the human stock that they've sent to, to colonize. Uh, his skin has... Uh, as novel adaptations to solar radiation and so forth. And as a thought experiment, I, I really, really like that novel and the whole concept of um, uh, of seeing the results so quickly. And I think that's what the novel's success is, lies in that. Uh, because obviously when you talk about terraforming Mars, it's generally a fairly long term. I, I like the fact that uh, I like the fact that, that Robert was talking about something that we could do, uh, steps that we could take within 50 to 100 years. Uh, I remember the first time I read an article, a serious article about terraformation was in junior high, and it was talking about a time scale of 200 years of you know, thickening the atmosphere. And you kind of get uh, a feedback loop, as I understand it, because the more plants that are belching out carbon dioxide, that's a greenhouse gas, so the atmosphere gets thicker yet and uh, increases its ability to retain heat, which melts more water, which which uh, provides nutrients to more plants, which, which exhale more carbon dioxide, etc. And I guess the irony that strikes me in this whole process of, of, terra, of terraforming factories is that we're essentially trying to accomplish the opposite of what's happening on Earth right now. We're trying to instigate a, a runaway greenhouse effect, while meanwhile here on Earth we're trying to do exactly the opposite. We're trying to arrest a runaway greenhouse effect. We're trying to absorb the greenhouse gases and, and put them back in the grounds or back in the oceans or whatever. Whereas uh, with Mars, that's where they are right now, and we want to unlock them and release them into the air so they can trap that sunlight. I, I like I like the irony there. You know, something occurs to me as you both are talking, and that is, how do we even begin to think anymore in terms of 25 years, 50 years, 100 years? It seems everything has got to be faster, faster. It's got to happen now. 
It can't happen a year from now. That's too long. Mankind has become conditioned to instant gratification. How will governments possibly prepare a program and sustain it that long? Look what's happened to the space program. We were on the moon in 1969. And now we're not going to get back till what? The end of the next 2020. decade? 2020. Yeah. That's what they're That's saying. That's right. So why does it take so long to get back to the moon? Why can't we just resurrect the old technology that got us there so quickly in the first place? Well, all we need to do is resurrect the courage that got us there in the first place. <laughs> well uh, it's categorically absurd. You know, Bush announced his return to the moon program in 2004, saying we'd get there by 2020, in other words, in 16 years, which is twice as long as it took us to do it the first time when we were inventing everything that needed to be done to do it. And so basically what this was, this was a sham replay of Kennedy, where Kennedy said, I'm committing the nation to go to the moon. We're going to do it this decade. That is to say, we are going to do it. Whereas Bush said, I think this country can go to the moon, and whoever follows me in office could start such a program if they feel like it. So there was no real commitment there. Now, furthermore, the return to the moon itself at this point is an inadequate objective. I mean, it's absurd that NASA should adopt as its great vision returning to the moon 50 years after it was there the first time. Because that's what 20, 20 would be 51 years, in fact, after right. they were there the first time. Okay, I mean, that would be like NASA in 1977 aiming its uh, objective of trying to fly the Atlantic, like Lindbergh did 50 years before. <laughs> okay, it's just ludicrous, uh, and it, it, it represents a retreat from courage. Uh, what NASA needs to do is reaffirm uh, courage, reaffirm pioneer values, reaffirm the idea that America is a nation that can do things that have never been done and is a nation whose great deeds will, will be recorded in newspapers and not in air and space museums exhibiting what great people we were 50 years ago. Okay, And so the objective should not be the moon, it should be Mars. From a technological point of view, we're much closer today to being able to send humans to Mars than they were to being able to send men to the moon in 1961, and they were there eight years later. If Barack Obama was to get up this spring and commit the nation to go to Mars, we could be there by the end of the second term. And if you want a stimulus package, that's the way to do it. Because Apollo was a massive stimulus for the U.S. economy in the 1960s. We had 6% rates of economic growth in this country in the 1960s, significantly because of Apollo. And not only did we have economic growth then because of Apollo, but it contributed to economic growth ever since because it doubled the number of science and engineering graduates in this country. Mm -hmm. At any level, high school, college, Ph.D., we've been benefiting from that intellectual capital ever since. It's certainly true of the development of integrated circuit technology in a major way. I'd like to comment about something that, that Mac brought up before, um, the issue of positive feedback loops, which we know has become a huge problem here on Earth, one that at this point we're aware of the mechanism, but yet we don't really understand how it works. So the question, Robert, is in attempting to do that kind of an implementation on the planet Mars, uh, do you think we'll know enough in 100 years about how positive feedback loops work in order to rein it in so it doesn't get out of control? Well, uh, well, first of all, we don't have a runaway greenhouse effect on Earth. We have a greenhouse effect on Earth, which is being driven, and on Earth there's negative feedback. That is why the Earth's climate has been stable over uh, billions of years. In fact, despite variations in sunlight and other things that has caused the planet to heat up or cool down, the Earth always responds with sufficient negative feedback to keep the temperature within narrow limits. So the Earth is stable. 
fundamentally. You can push against it and push it in one direction or another, but the Earth pushes back, and that's going to keep temperatures on Earth within certain bounds, no matter what we do. Now, the issue of, of exactly where within those bounds it is, that's an issue, but there's not a runaway greenhouse effect on Earth. There can't be. And the Earth has shown that uh, repeatedly over billions of years of its climatic history. Now, Mars could have a runaway greenhouse effect. It did once have a runaway icebox effect, effect. Uh, when its atmospheric CO2 thinned out enough, the temperature got cold enough to allow the soil to act as a sponge to start sponging in CO2, and then you get uh, uh, the more it sponges in, the thinner the atmosphere gets, the colder it gets, the more it sponges in, and so forth. That is uh, a positive feedback system. To terraform Mars, we need to ignite a positive feedback system the other way. We need to push Mars back to its a warm state. Mars was in its early history a warm and wet planet. We can see that because we can see the water erosion features all over the surface of Mars. It was only that way because the CO2, instead of being in the soil, was in the atmosphere, and that gave it a sufficient greenhouse effect. So we need to create a runaway greenhouse effect on Mars in order to push the planet from its cold state into its warm state. It's a somewhat different situation than the Earth. The Earth has uh, um, pretty good boundaries that it, it, it maintains to keep temperatures within a certain fairly narrow swing of around 12 degrees C over geologic time. But Mars doesn't, and, and that's actually what makes it possible to create a radical transformation of Mars. Uh, Robert, you mentioned the water features on Mars, the dry rivers, and did you find it strange, as I do, the endless waffling on NASA's behalf of what exactly caused these features? It seems like over the years, since maybe 2000 or so, I've been uh, reading studies suggesting you know, these were caused by uh, carbon dioxide flows, liquid carbon dioxide, uh, dust, uh, water, and then it goes back again. And it seems to me that the most logical explanation is water, as you were saying. But do you find uh, NASA's kind of schizophrenic stance a little exasperating? Well, NASA doesn't have a party line uh, with yeah. respect to this. There is sort of this scientific community, right. which is composed of a large number of people. And I, I think at this point the dominant position within the scientific community is those are water erosion features. You had some guys in Australia that wanted to have their own unique position, and they published a paper saying it was caused by liquid CO2, which was basically absurd. The idea that it's caused by flowing dust is also absurd. I, the only real issue with these channels is whether they were caused by liquid water flowing over long periods of time, like a, a river, as we think of rivers here on Earth, or whether they were flash floods outflows that happened, you know, basically all at once and then stopped. And at this point, well, that's a, a, a subtler argument to distinguish between flash flood features and standing water long duration features, but at this point it's pretty clear that there were long duration standing water and flowing water features on Mars. But there will always be some guy who is a holdout. I mean, you know, there's still people who don't believe in the Big Bang. There are still people who don't believe in evolution. You know, there's kind of a, mis um, a misperception. A lot of people think of NASA as, as, as a single entity that issues all its proclamations from a single mouth, when in fact it's, like you said, lots of different researchers all vying for headline space. Yes. Let me ask you just something here about Mars. Now, you're talking about having more temperate, more conditions conducive to life a long time ago. Now, what is the theory here that maybe we are the Martians originally that somehow either 
we were seeded here because of the meteorites containing elements from Mars, or maybe we came here. You know, the Martians left Mars because conditions became unacceptable to them, and they sent a colony to Earth and were their descendants. Now, that might get into kind of a crazy realm here, but then we do crazy things here. Hey, neighbors, the easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time, because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web, save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We are talking to Robert Zubrin, author of a number of books, including the most recent, How to Live on Mars, a trusty guidebook to surviving and thriving on the red planet. And, of course, we have our old friend of the show, Mac Tonys, who's getting older even as we speak. So what do you think of this crazy scenario that Mars may have had intelligent life at one time in the past? I don't think Mars had intelligent life in the past. There's no evidence for that. Um, Mars was warm and wet for a period of time, more than sufficient to originate cellular life, but not to evolve over time to intelligent life. That said, there is another sense in which we may be the Martians. Uh, it could be that microorganisms from Mars colonized the Earth. And there's actually reasons to believe that that might be true. The first thing is this. Okay, um, Mars was warm and wet for a longer period of time than it took life to appear on Earth after there was liquid water here. In fact, it was warm and wet for five times as long as it took uh, bacteria to appear on Earth uh, after there was liquid water here. So... If we believe that the laws of science are the same on Mars and elsewhere in the universe as they are on Earth, there's no particular reason to believe that life could not have originated on Mars just as easily as Earth. But furthermore, Mars had liquid water before the Earth did, because Mars cooled first because it was a smaller planet. The planets all originally were molten, and then they had to cool off a bit to allow liquid water to exist, and Mars had a head start. So it would be easier for life to originate first on Mars than on Earth. Second of all, we now know that there's natural transfer of material between Earth and Mars caused by a meteoric impact. We have discovered uh, over a dozen meteors on Earth, meteorites, that were actually represent material ejected from Mars by impacts into Mars and which then flew across space and landed on Earth. And for instance, you take the Alan Hills meteorite, which caused a great deal of controversy in 1996, when a number of scientists founded their belief uh, based on uh, examination of this particular meteorite, which unquestionably came from Mars, that it had um, life in it. Microbes were active in it while it was on Mars three and a half billion years ago. Now, that is controversial, and that debate is unresolved, uh, although I think their evidence is pretty good. But what 
is unquestioned about their data is the following. Number one, the rock came from Mars. Number two, it was in an aqueous environment on Mars three and a half billion years ago, an environment that could have supported life. There are minerals in it that only form in water. Um, and finally, what has also been established by scientists examining this rock was that in its entire career, including ejection from Mars, flight through space, re-entry, and landing on Earth, there are major volumes within this rock that were never raised above 40 centigrade. Um, and because there are compounds in it that would break down above 40 centigrade. So what that means is if there had been microbes in that rock while it was on Mars, they could have survived the trip to Earth. They would, the rock would not have been sterilized by the process that it went through in flying from Mars to Earth. So these things all argue that it, life could have come from Mars, but still, why do we need Mars? Why couldn't it come from Earth? And why do we need life to come from Mars? Well, there's a mystery about life on Earth, which is this, which is that we find no examples of free-living life forms on Earth simpler than bacteria. There are viruses which are simpler than bacteria, but they are not free-living life forms. They are parasites on life. They could not exist without life, you know, fully living organisms to live off of. So... Bacteria are the simplest free-living organisms that we find on Earth, and yet bacteria are not simple. They're extremely complex. In fact, and the simplest bacteria is more complex than the Concord and, um, by any standard. And so bacteria could no more have been the first free-living life than the Concord was the first machine. There had to be a pedigree of evolution leading up to them. Okay, just as there are many simpler machines, airplanes and, 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 and any number of other devices that, that predate the airplane that went into airplanes, including things like development of metals, for example, and what have you. And um, so, uh, so bacteria were not the first living organisms, and yet they appear to be the first living organisms on Earth. Where is their prior history? It seems it would have to be somewhere else, and it could have been on Mars. And by going to Mars... And looking for life on Mars, and now there is some very serious evidence of life on Mars that was uh, unveiled by NASA. If we can get samples of that and find in it organisms that perhaps include things comparable to bacteria, but also things simpler than bacteria, more primitive things than bacteria, then we may have found our ancestors. When we talk about something more primitive than bacteria, what specific types of life forms are we talking about? Well, that are viruses. That's undefined. We have no free-living organisms on Earth simpler than bacteria. In other words, bacteria have this entire system of RNA and DNA, of replicating information. It's like a software and hardware system, like a computer. They have the whole thing. You know, it's like finding... The, the, the first computer on Earth being, you know, a 386. And, and you say, well, here's a 386, okay, and we've got better computers than that now, but still, 386 is a pretty advanced computer. It couldn't have come out of thin air. What predated it? So what does a molecular biologist say when, when you ask that question? Some of them concede the point. Uh, others of them say, well, it could be that the things that are simpler than bacteria have all gone extinct. Okay, and that's possible. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if we look at the history of life on Earth, that's not consistent with the general pattern. The general pattern is as more advanced life forms are developed, the simple forms remain. Okay? Right. All vertebrates are descended from fish, but we still have plenty of fish. 
and we still have segmented mer- worms that predate fish, and we, you know, and and we, so forth, and we still have singular cell uh, organisms, and we still have bacteria. So all the previous evolutionary steps are still well represented in the biosphere, except when you get to bacteria, that stops. But there, okay? there's and you don't find distinctions as well. What? There's lots of organisms that have have been around on Earth that are, there's evidence of them, but not necessarily in the biosphere, but in the fossil record. Right. But also... Earlier forms of, like, trilobites. Yeah. But, in fact, what we find is the, I mean, things comparable to trilobites, trilobites are comparable to insects in their general biological complexity and design. And there's plenty of insects around. In other words, the, the varieties have changed, but the general type is still very much with us. Well, at the same time, we have to remember that when you look at things like the fossil record, uh, there's a lot of reason to believe that uh, a majority of the life forms that have existed that have, that have gone instinct, uh, extinct have not left any type of fossil record. Fossils really form in very specific circumstances. And if a life form finds themselves in one of those very specific circumstances, then you get fossils. So is there potential, if you're talking about a life form that's simpler, than bacteria. Are we talking about a situation where uh, potentially these things did exist, but they would have been maybe too, too fragile to leave biological record? Is that a possibility? Well, uh, maybe, except that well, what I'm saying is we don't just have fossils of bacteria. we got bacteria. In other words, right, the, right, right. if you look at the evolution of life on Earth, how there's any number of species that have gone extinct, uh, the general types of simpler organisms are still very much represented living. Not in fossils, but living in the biosphere. Okay, so while it's conceivable that pre-bacteria organisms uh, did live at one time on Earth and then went extinct, it's not consistent with the general pattern of evolution. On the other hand, if pre-bacteria organisms did not have sufficient adaptations to allow them to travel across space and live, that would explain why bacteria arrived here safely and began to colonize and evolution on Earth took off from that as their starting point, but pre-bacteria are not here. It's like, uh, look, if human civilization disappeared, and then at some time in the future, a uh, a team of archaeologists from outer space came to Earth and tried to reconstruct the history of humanity from the ruins that they find, if they did their work correctly, they would be able to conclude that Western civilization did not originate in North America because you find no evidence of structures or other artifacts of Europeans in North America that predate Renaissance technology, Uh okay? But you do find them in Europe. So in Europe, you can identify the entire prior history of Western civilization from what it is like in the present going all the way back into the Neolithic time. Okay, you can find classical ruins and medieval castles and all these things. You don't find any medieval castles in North America except things that are copies or Disney versions. You don't find any real medieval castles here. Right, there's nothing really old. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you could conclude on the basis of that that Western Western civilization in North America is an import. And now, why is it that it, it starts? With Renaissance technology, it's because only when Europeans reach the Renaissance level of technology are they capable of sailing across the Atlantic. Hmm. All right. <laughs> this raises lots of fascinating. No, you were going to say something, Matt. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, 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 I take it back. It was a kind of a logical fallacy. <laughs> I, I censored myself at the last minute. 
Oh, okay. No, I, I agree with what was said. <laughs> well, having agreed with what was said, then, you know, what can I say? But, you know, I agree with you or I disagree with you, but we're raising a lot of fascinating possibilities here. And maybe we could spend a few moments, as they say, debunking some Martian myths before we go on or considering some of them realities. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Robert Zubrin joining us, author of How to Live on Mars, a trusty guidebook to surviving and thriving on the red planet, telling everybody 100 years from now, if you go to Mars, this is how to do it, okay? This is how to survive. So if they put you in the freezatorium, you know, you're in the freezatorium and you're set to go to Mars 100 years from now, when they awaken you and they found the way to avoid all the cellular damage, you're going to confront this. We have, of course, Mac Tony. So let's talk about the Martian mysteries. Over the years, we, I guess, have wanted, and maybe it is in our genes because, you know, our microbes came from Mars originally. We have wanted to have life on Mars. I think we've ached to have life on Mars. And originally we had Martian canals. Now, how did the canal story first get started? Who wants to take that? The canal story was started because uh, the Italian astronomer Schiaparelli, through his telescope, saw features on Mars that he thought resembled channels. The word for channel in Italian is canali, and this was then when translated into English, people translated as canal. And then uh, the astronomer Percival Lowell here in the United States made a career of writing books about all his observations of Martian canals and about the fact that they must represent a Martian civilization and um, actually very much put the idea of Martian civilization uh, very much within the human psyche. And then uh, Edgar Ross Burroughs wrote novels that were quite popular depicting uh, adventures uh, that could be occurring within this Martian civilization and you know, heroic swordsmen rescuing daring princesses from evil monsters and, and so forth. And um, the, the and so people came to uh, have a view of Mars, and then the word Martian entered the language and so forth. But it turned out the canals were not real. And while there are, in fact, channels on Mars, those were not things that Schiaparelli observed. Those were discovered much later by Mariner. Uh, the things that Schiaparelli actually saw were optical illusions. Quick question. But there are channels on Mars. Anyway. In the first chapter of your book, um, How to Get to Mars, you go through the different options on how to actually get from Earth to Mars in order of desirability. 
I love your description of what goes on in the cycling spacecraft. It sounds like a typical college dorm room that you just can't get out of for six months. Um, question for you. One of the things that I notice absent from here is any discussion of suspended animation. Anybody who saw 2001 A Space Odyssey is very familiar with the imagery of the crew, most of the crew in suspended animation on the craft on its way to Jupiter. Is there a reason that you avoided that? Is the assumption that that would be too expensive to implement? Well, I just don't see a need for it. Uh, it takes uh, six months to fly from Earth to Mars. It took six months to sail from England to Australia in the 1800s. People can do six-month trips without being put in suspended animation. But wouldn't they come out smelling better at the end of it if they were in suspended animation? I mean, it's kind of, again, it's kind of funny. You paint the picture of getting to Mars uh, smelling like hell and uh, that having a real detrimental effect on your social life once you get on the planet. So, so perhaps going under the freeze for six months, wouldn't you come out uh, nice and dandy fresh on the other side? Well, it depends what the freeze always smells like. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, no, you bring up a point. It's conceivable that that's how some stiffs might get to Mars. Um, <laughs> I just never really been into suspended animation, so I postulated it as traveling to Mars uh, as a breathing human being. All right. Well, also we we have yet to we have yet to perfect suspended animations. That's another technological hurdle. Right. It's desirable. I, I you know I, I would see people opting for it personally, um, perhaps even on transatlantic flights. But um, there's some interesting speculation on how to do it. But uh, as far as I know, there we are not able to we're not able to accomplish it yet. Well, not yet. And part of the assumption yeah, again, yeah. you know, you talk about the book. There are a lot of things in here we haven't really been able to accomplish yet. So, uh, I mean, part of, I guess, the exercise of, of doing a book like this is trying to project out technologically uh, where right. we would be. I mean, one of the, the right. things... Right. I didn't want to project too much technologically. I, I wanted to keep the technology uh, mostly within the stuff that we know how to do. Because part of the reason, actually, was to teach people about uh, space technology mm -hmm. uh, using this format. So I didn't want to just make up everything, okay? I wanted okay. most of the technology in the book to be genuine. Okay, so you're yeah, assuming that we're not going to advance that much more. Well, the, the reason why in the book I didn't, I mean, I go beyond current technology in a few respects, but uh, in general I try to stay close to current technology or limited projections of current technology because I wanted to teach people about technology and I didn't want to just make things up. I didn't want to be using magic, okay? Uh, the book, while it has some science fictional elements, certainly in that it's based in a a future human civilization on Mars. It's very hard science fiction. Uh, it's all reality-based. So when you talk about the uh, the cycling spacecraft, and that it, again, you paint this really sort of gory picture of uh, this green and brown microbial slime, do you think there's a possibility that, again, extrapolating on current technology, that we'd have some kind of a, of a biological chemical wash that would basically eat that stuff? Because that sounds like a pretty uh, formidable problem for the cycling spacecraft in terms of being able to get people to go on it. Yeah, it's called filth. And, you know, <laughs> as I mentioned, in the, the, you know, the Mir space station, which was up for around 10 years, uh, became quite filthy. Uh, and there was green slime and everything. It was, and here you have these cyclers in constant orbit back and forth between Earth and Mars for decades. Uh, they eventually will really stink up unless you really take the effort to scrub them down. But, so this was, once again, this was an exploration of the comical side of a real system. In other words, uh, many people 
uh, for instance, Buzz Aldrin, have proposed developing these cyclers. Put a space station in a cycling orbit between Earth and Mars, and then you won't have to launch it except the first time. After that, you just have to catch it with a very small spacecraft, and your living quarters are permanently launched. So that's a technologically doable uh, situation. No doubt about it, and it offers certain advantages. But then what I, I, I started doing was thinking of, well, what if it starts smelling like mirror? Okay. Um, and you got this thing between Earth and Mars. Who's going to go up there to clean it? You know? Um, so that's sort of how the book works, in that I take valid technological ideas and I explore their light and dark sides, if you will. We definitely do that real well on page, uh, I think it's 24, with the human waste disposal system, the waste, the thermal control and waste management. Uh, I like how you spent not too much time on it because uh, it, I guess it gets pretty gory. And I love your yeah. your advice. Get the one with the biggest uh, containment uh, uh, tank, sort of a uh, little thing on it, the biggest bag on it. Which uh, I, I think I laughed out loud when I read that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, diaper overflow is a bad problem. Ooh, ooh, pretty nasty. Now, this also goes uh, when you talk about uh, the whole issue of agriculture on on Mars, and you have this, uh, you have these different options for how to grow your own food. Instead of sort of what we know here on Earth as hydroponics, you get into this whole thing about the mostly disadvantages of having a, a system that is based on recycling human waste. So, is that really a, a situation where you think that in a hundred years maybe we would have, have gained certainly? enough of a technological understanding to be able to get around the, the taste issues. I think you, you make the statement, you could grow the stuff, but who's going to eat it? Um, you know, recycling right. one's well, own waste. not so much hydroponics. Well, I, don't, I don't think some you really deal have, with hydroponics. Some people, yeah. some people have advocated using hydroponic systems not just to grow food, but to recycle waste. Right. Okay. And you can do that, too. But the taste of the food will reflect that. So you got to make up your mind. Are you using your uh, greenhouse to grow food that you want to eat, or are you using it to recycle and break down waste? Those mm -hmm. are two separate jobs. They're best done separately. Right. From Dune, perhaps, with a, with a still suit recycling uh, bodily fluids. <laughs> well, I thought of Dune as kind of a Martian, an unofficial Martian novel. Remember, Silent Green is people. <laughs> That's right. But you also wonder, and it's a practical matter, I guess from a logical standpoint, taking cadavers or something and breaking down the raw ingredients, wouldn't that be a way of creating foodstuffs? I'm being very morbid here, but it does have a certain logical bent, even though it's just, I think, a, a gimmick in a movie, you know. Well, that was, uh, the Soylent Green was not just a gimmick, it was the basis of a whole anti-utopia. And I think it's interesting, by the way, if you look at science fiction, uh, movies especially, and to some extent books, they have two visions of the future. One is you might call the Star Trek future, the open space-faring future, human beings going out into the universe, creating new societies, uh, not necessarily perfect societies, not certainly not societies without risk. Uh, or potential downsides, but nevertheless, taken as a whole, it's a glorious adventure, it's extremely promising, it's optimistic, it's filled with hope and possibility. The other future is the soil and green future, which does not involve space travel, involves human beings confined to the earth and uh, attempting to endure uh, living 
within a shrinking horizon and, 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 and the human race living on a shrinking pie and being forced to endure tighter regulation to limit human aspirations to accept the limits to growth and possibilities and freedom disappearing and, 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 and basically a hopeless future. And, you know, and ultimately that's the stakes between whether we become a space-faring species or not, uh, whether we have an open future or a closed future, you know. And it also be- means whether we have a future that is going to uh, be filled with freedom or a future that will deny freedom. Now, one of the things, Robert, that you put forward in the book is the idea that you still have this very strong set of nationalist tendencies uh, for example, if you're going to Mars, based on which of the two colonies you're going to, you sort of know where you're coming from. Um, do we think that perhaps a hundred, let's even say 150 years out, there's a good possibility, thinking again along positive lines, that there's a realization that uh, the colonization of a planet like Mars has major global benefits and that perhaps uh, the technology and the, the, the money required to get to Mars in the way that you envision it would sort of inherently impose, uh, demand really, a multinational effort that even use that multinational nature to create sort of a new mentality about going to Mars, where instead of these you know, two different colonies that you envision, uh, you instead have one colony where nationalism is essentially not, not completely uh, disregarded, but to a large degree. And if you don't have nation states on Mars, how do you have nationalist sentiment? Well, I think that Mars will develop its own nations. Uh, perhaps one nation, perhaps many nations on Mars. Uh, I think there's new nations waiting to be born. I think there's new languages and cultures waiting to be born. These languages and cultures will uh, have a point of departure in current languages and cultures from Earth, just as, for instance, the American culture is an offshoot of English culture, uh, as it was in the Tudor and Enlightenment period. And since then, we have diverged significantly from uh, English ways of doing things. But nevertheless, uh, there's obviously many common features, and not just in language, uh, but in attitudes, uh, individualistic attitudes, uh, much more so than if we come from an Asian culture or a Muslim culture or mm-hmm. even a Spanish culture. Um, you know, so... But still, we then proceeded. Um, and I think these different new cultures that will come into being on Mars will be offshoots of various terrestrial cultures, um, but then they will go their own way. I'm curious, uh, Robert, if you've ever read any of, uh, you probably have, or, what, or rather the question is what you, what you think of the ideas of uh, Gerard K. O'Neill uh, in the 70s. Uh, for listeners who are unfamiliar with O'Neill, he was a big proponent. Yeah, I, I'm, of, I'm certainly familiar with Gerard O'Neill. I think Gerard O'Neill was wrong. Um, the the idea of building societies in orbit, um, where there is nothing, um, the uh, it, it's much easier to settle a planet than to build one, and bi- moving billions of tons of mass from the asteroids or from the moon into Earth orbit to build colonies. And the supposition of, is, is that uh, the reason why you want to do this is because these colonies could be funded with uh, the export of, of, of solar power to Earth, that they would mm-hmm. create solar panels and then make electricity and beam the power down to Earth as a commercial product. Um, and that's sort of what the whole thing hung on. It hung on a, a business plan. 
The business plan's not workable. And the reason why it's not workable is that electricity is a very common commodity. To the consumer, a kilowatt is a kilowatt is a kilowatt. And it doesn't matter whether it's made by a coal-fired plant or a hydroelectric plant or a nuclear plant or an earth-based solar panel or an orbital solar panel. The only thing that matters is which is the cheapest. And you can uh, generate half as much solar power on Earth and Arizona at one millionth the cost of doing it in orbit. So solar panel on orbit will never be competitive with solar power on Earth, which itself is not competitive with uh, other means of generating power on Earth. Um, and so it, it's not realistic. The things you want to export to Earth are things from space, are, are not common commodities that could just as easily be produced on Earth. And our friends it would make no sense to export gravel from the moon to the Earth even though you can get gravel on the moon, and people do need gravel for various projects on Earth. But obviously, it's much easier to get the gravel on Earth for use on Earth. Um, on the other hand, a Mars colony, um, which would be um, a population of technologically adept people in a situation where they're being forced to innovate and where they are free to innovate because they are separated from the controlling institutions of the Earth, would be a tremendously inventive society, just as uh, early America and 19th century America was an amazingly inventive society for exactly the same reason, the frontier as a driving force for invention. Um, and But those inventions made, uh, whether in hyper-productive greenhouse agriculture or robotics to do labor-saving engineering or, or whatever, uh, invented to allow the Mars colony uh, to succeed, you could license these patents on Earth. Um, and that is a way a Mars colony can make money, not by exporting electricity or water or gravel or some other common thing that could easily be produced on Earth, but by exporting inventions. Well, on a somewhat related note, what do you, what do you think of the, um, I keep reading about the developments and uh, the hindrances towards developing a space elevator, um, oh, wow, that we could do a whole show on. Let's do this. Let's <laughs> hold off the space elevator, okay. Matt, to part All two. Right. Okay, because. My that, answer, though, in brief, is the space elevator would be great, but we need new materials to make it possible. We don't have them yet. Well, okay, there it goes. There goes the space elevator. Sorry about that. Robert, before we go to part two, tell our listeners where can we get a copy of How to Live on Mars. I think if you accept the concept, ladies and gentlemen, David and I are 100% on this, you will love this book. Absolutely. So where do we get a copy? Yeah, well, the, the book, uh, well, the most obvious place to get it is Amazon.com. Right. Uh, How to Live on Mars by Robert Zubrin. It's there. And there's also been uh, a number of reader reviews there that people can see what other people are saying about the book. Um, and uh, that's the easiest place. It's also in Barnes and & Nobles and, and, and many bookstores at this point, but not all of them. We'll have Robert Zubrin and Mac Tonys on the other side of the PowerCast. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, attack of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, 
The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We return. Robert Zubrin, author of How to Live on Mars and a number of other books. Mac Tony's. You had a book out on Mars, too, some time back, right? In 2004, yes. It was called? It was, it was called, sorry. It was called After the Martian Apocalypse, and it, it dealt with kind of the uh, the extinction event on Mars and, and dealt with uh, the speculation that there might, might actually have been uh, inhabited structures at one point, which admittedly is a fringe notion, but I think there's some evidence for it. That's something that might be worth exploring. But let's go back to the elevator on Mars. Okay, so Robert, the problem here is we don't have the technology or materials to do such a thing. Explain to our listeners what this is. Is this like the elevator you use to take yourself up to the top of the Empire State Building? Except that instead of going a thousand feet or so, it goes a hundred miles. Is that the concept? The space elevator? Yes. Uh, well, actually, uh, it goes twenty-two thousand miles. You see, if you have a satellite in orbit 22,000 miles above the Earth, it orbits the Earth at the, the same rate of um, angular rotation as the Earth spins. So it's in geosynchronous orbit is what it's called. It always hangs over the same spot. So what if you lowered a rope from that satellite? And in principle, somebody could call, that rope would have a stationary position on the ground if one ignores wind and things like this, okay? Um, and in principle, you could climb it. Okay, so that's the idea of a space elevator. Now the problem, however, is this: is that if you take the bottom tip of that rope, okay, it only has to support you, but the next piece of rope above it has to support you plus the piece of rope above uh, below it. So it has to be a bit thicker, and the next piece of rope above that has to support you plus the the two pieces of rope below it. So it has to be still thicker. So the rope gets thicker and thicker, and the thicker it gets, the more it weighs, and, the th and therefore the thicker the rope above it still has to get. So it becomes exponential. And um, using current-day materials to lift any kind of weight to speak of at all, say one ton, um, the, uh, the rope would weigh trillions of tons. Now, if we could develop much, much stronger materials, for instance, some people talk about the potential of carbon nanotubes to create ultra-strong uh, 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 tethers, then this might actually be possible. Right now, it's not possible. Right now, if you use steel cable or Kevlar cable or Spectra cable, uh, the, the, the tether would weigh trillions of times more than the payload it's trying to lift, and so it just, it just wouldn't pay to create such a system. But if we did have very advanced systems uh, that were much stronger than current materials, then it would be possible for people to go to space in elevator cars once you launched the, the tether system into orbit to start with. I always think when I read about this that what happens if there is a tornado? What happens if there's a hurricane? Does that affect this thing? Yeah, it would. Um, and that would be bad. Um, and, and so these are, are called operational issues that you'd have to deal with. Uh, but at this point, we're not even 
at that point of dealing with operational issues. At this point, we're dealing with physical issues. Mm-hmm. There, there's something, uh, another term, Robert, I notice uh, specifically uh, missing from the book, is nanotechnology. Correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you mentioned the term nanotechnology anywhere in the it's book. It's mentioned in a few places. It is? Okay, uh, then I must have glossed yeah. over. Um, it doesn't play a major role, but it is mentioned um, as some of the technology that is being developed on Mars because it's banned on Earth. It's banned on Earth? Yep. So explain our audience why you feel it would be banned on Earth. Oh, because... Um, Replication issues? Well, do. if you have a tightly regulated society that is always asking what if, okay, it has a tendency to ban... A new innovation. So, for instance, we have movements right now on Earth. Okay, we have already really put the kibosh on the development of nuclear technology. Uh, on genetically engineered plants are being, uh, uh, despite the massive benefits that they offer humanity, there are all kinds of movements, and the Europeans have already banned them, uh, and so forth. You know, and. Uh, certainly nanotechnology would fall into that category of things where people could come up with all kinds of scenarios of that it would be dangerous and therefore it would be banned by the various protective authorities. And so uh, for such technologies then to develop, you've got to go to a place where uh, basically uh, police authority is less capable, organized. It's like yeah. Blade Runner. The, the replicants were banned on Earth, but they used them off-world for, um, for terraforming purposes. But if you think of, if you go back in history a little bit, okay, you know, in Europe, as late as the 1700s, guilds still controlled manufacturers of various things, for instance, shoes, okay? If you wanted to make a shoe, you had to be a member of the guild. To get to be a member of the guild, you had to... Uh, your father had to be a member of the guild, and he had to apprentice you out to another, some friend of his who was a member of the guild, and you'd work as an apprentice and then as a journeyman. And if you went through all the steps, you know, of doing, you know, 12 years or something of this kind of, of apprenticeship and journeymanship, you eventually could be admitted to the guild, too. And by then, you would be totally committed to the idea that no one should be allowed to make shoes unless they were also members of the guild, because you had gone, had to do this, too. And not only that, the guild had certain specific ways a shoe would be made. Okay. Now, you come to America where the guilds had no power. Um, somebody wants to say, oh, I have an idea how much shoes. I'll set up a shoe factory. Okay. And I'll get all these you know, poor kids in here and put them to work on machines and we'll produce shoes by 100. Okay. And later on, uh, they're able to bring in steam and then electricity and you know, all kinds of other machines and produce shoes by the million. And, you know, there was a time actually, even within human memory, when poorer people um, did not own shoes, typically, because it would be uh, three months' wages for a, uh, a poor workman to be able to buy a pair of shoes. And today, you can buy a pair of shoes for what you make in an hour or two because of the advance of technology. But that's only because these limits on creativity were broken by going someplace where authorities committed to the old ways of doing things do not have power. So, you know, Americans, you know, we always talk about how we created freedom of the press and free religion. We don't have a state-established church and this and that, um, and that's all true. Uh, but th- these kinds of freedoms extend to much more mundane aspects of life. Uh, and really open things up. And this was the benefit of going to a new world. Absolutely. One of the things that struck me, Robert, when you were just talking about that, 
uh, you think about, for example, genetically engineered crops, altered crops, and how there's been a tremendous resistance to them. Uh, I wonder what will happen at some point when people get hungry enough. I suspect that, you know, you have a situation where I think about Reagan, uh, I believe, having issues with stem cell research. And uh, but then when he was sick, Nancy Reagan saying, you know, I'm all for stem cell research now. Uh, yeah, people are against things until it really, really makes sense and really, really benefits them personally. And then all of a sudden there's a turnaround. I suspect if we were getting close to twelve dollar or fifteen or twenty dollar a gallon gas, uh, you might see things turn around a little bit on the whole nuclear energy issue, um, because well, at that point, survival. So, so, yeah. One would have hoped that would have happened by the time we got the three dollar gas, because <laughs> a lot of us can remember thirty six cents gas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Robert, I don't want to age myself. Twenty nine cents gas. <laughs> I'm in trouble now. I am as old as the hills. You know, well, well, I guess that's true. Well, 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 let's let's actually broach this because Robert, one of the things about um, the book, you get into the issue of you need to have a good energy source, and one of the things that you make clear in here is that nuclear energy is not the universal panacea we'd all think it would be on Mars. Could you get into that a little bit? Yeah, well, the nuclear energy is a very useful thing on Mars, uh, and the central colonies have nuclear reactors for that reason. But it's really unrealistic to think about isolated uh, settlements further out from the central settlements uh, being able to afford their own nuclear reactors. Nuclear reactors are intrinsically expensive for any number of reasons. And um, so, uh, and then he talks about the problems of the alternative. Solar panels are always getting dusted up. Do you want to be brushing off your solar panels all the time? Um, the wind is too, while you have good wind on Mars, the air is too thin to give you much power that way. Uh, beamed power from orbit, if the satellite steam wobbles, you end up microwaving your house. So um, the, the best source of remote power on Mars is geothermal power. And actually, we just got proof that it exists. The methane. No doubt yeah. about it now. All right. Uh, Why don't you tell our listeners more about this? This was in the newspapers online about methane discovered in the atmosphere of Mars. What does this signify? What does it mean to regular people? All right. They didn't just discover methane in the atmosphere. Actually, methane, traces of methane in Mars' atmosphere are identified by the European Mars Express probe a number of years ago, uh, although some people contested it, as they always do. But nevertheless, the Europeans did, in fact, discover traces of methane in the atmosphere. What these guys discovered were vents, in one case, sending 19,000 tons of methane into the Martian atmosphere from one isolated location over the past year. So they found, not only proof without a doubt that there's methane in Mars atmosphere, they found locations on Mars where this has been vented out of the ground in substantial amounts. And, and so what could cause that? Well, there's only two possible sources. One is biological, which means they would have discovered life on Mars, and the other is a hydrothermal vent which means it discovered a place where life could be living on Mars because it's an underground reservoir of hot water, okay, which is a place friendly for certain kinds of microbes that we see on Earth in these environments. So either way, it's a huge discovery. Now, furthermore, what it also shows, either way, is that it's warm underground on Mars. It shows there's geologic heat because you could not have either life or hydrothermal activity unless it was warmer underground on Mars than it is at the surface. The only way that it's warm underground is if, if, if the planet has a hot core and, and so forth. So the, the, the 
So what they showed is uh, that there's unquestionably a hot underground on Mars, which means there's geothermal power available on Mars, just like there is in Iceland and, and, and many other places on Earth. So um, for uh, you know Mars settlers going into the outback who can't afford a nuclear reactor and don't want to be stuck with unreliable solar power because it's unreliable during the dust storm, there's not enough sunlight, the, the most logical source of power for them is to drill a well and get geothermal power out of it. Let me follow up something here. That is, if Mars is warmer beneath the surface, why can't we assume there is a more advanced level of life there? Why does it have to be microbes? Well, if you're talking about the kind of organisms that live underground in groundwater on, on Earth, um, they're typically microbes. Now, if you're talking about pools of water, not just water that's sort of soaked in the soil and is hot, Okay, but you know, you know, pools of water that can be moved around in. Um, then, yeah, conceivably, one could imagine. Um, I mean, the sub, uh, the, the the vents at the bottom of the Earth's oceans are filled with colonies of life, of fish, and you know, all kinds of, of, of sponges and, and squids, and all, you know, the the whole gamut of, of, of complex terrestrial life that does live around these. Um, hot vents at the bottom of the ocean um, but aside from the microbes that live there it's not clear that the rest of them evolved there they could have been fish and, and other things that migrated there when they saw that there was a rich uh, microorganism a harvest to be um, fed on there so we seem to be looking at uh, something along the lines of some of the speculation regarding uh, the Jovian moons like Europa where it's it's theorized that you have a hot vent caused by tidal stress, in this case under under a sea of, of, of water, where you might have an oasis. Something like that might might apply to Mars as well. Well, that could also be. Uh, Europa unquestionably has an ocean under its ice, although it's going to be hard to reach because its ice is probably 100 kilometers thick. Um, it's much easier to reach the liquid water underground on Mars, both because, first of all, Mars is much closer to the Earth, but also because the liquid water is much closer to the surface, probably less than a kilometer on the surface. Gotcha. And in fact, we have evidence of a transitory outflow of liquid water from the subsurface to the surface that occurred within the past 10 years. Um, the Mars Global Surveyor uh, Orbiter found a place where it took two pictures from on the side of a crater, and in 1997, there was no gully on the side of this crater, and in 2007, there was. Um, so the Martians are real busy. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To get yours, go to our homepage at theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Select your size from the pop-up menu. Click Buy Now to place your order for the official Paracast T-shirt. 
Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO Magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time when we just want to hear the show. Just tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way. Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com. Subscribe online. You happy? Yeah, was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We're talking to Robert Zubrin, author of a really entertaining new book called How to Live on Mars. I know about belly laughs, but you know what? Get pretty close there. It really has a lot of funny aspects to it, and I really enjoyed it, and David enjoyed it. So what can we say? And we have Mac Tonys, who's also a scientific explorer, and we're looking at the conditions on Mars, the conditions that might be conducive to life. I met a question here. For those who are skeptical about space exploration, they look at this country and they say, well, the United States is messed up financially. We don't have the money to do this. Look at all the things that are happening on this planet. We have to stop the tribal warfare, whatever it is around the world. We have all this stuff going on. Why are we going to outer space? Why are we throwing the money away? What benefit is there to us for that? Robert? What is our benefit of going to space? Absolutely. Creating new worlds for humanity, uh, creating the potential for new branches of human civilization, creating an open future, creating the potential for the Star Trek future instead of the Silent Green future. What would be more important to do than that? But how do you got you, he got you good on that one, Gene. No, but how do you convince governments? How do you convince people in general to say, okay, let us have the space program? It's too long that we've sat down here and done nothing. We let the space program die. We haven't had the courage to get back, as you said in part one. Okay, how well, do we I, I reinvigorate think, this? Well, Columbus sold his mission to Ferdinand and Isabella on the basis that he'd find a spice route to India, which is something that interested them. I'm not sure it's what really interested Columbus. As a Genoese, it wouldn't really be something that great for Spain to have a, a way to the west, to the Indies, instead of having to rely on uh, Italians and their Mediterranean activity trading through the Arab lands to the Indies. Um, the, uh, I think he was interested in exploring, but he sold it based on what would sell. We who believe in the human future in space, um, you know, uh, in the 1960s, we sold it based on the Cold War imperative. Today, perhaps, the strongest sales pitch is an economic stimulus. Uh, Apollo was great economic stimulus, as I mentioned earlier. They're looking for an economic stimulus. This is a lot better one than hiring a, a million people to go out and mop the roads or something. Uh, because uh, this way we stimulate our industries to do research, to develop new technologies. We stimulate youth to want to go into science and engineering. 
uh, we expand our horizons, we raise our morale as we reassert that we can do things that have never been done before and that no challenges beyond, beyond us. Um, so I think at this particular juncture in time, uh, the strongest justification for a human Mars program to the political class would be its role as an economic stimulus. But really, just as we today don't care about the fact that Columbus did not find a spice route to India, it doesn't matter at all. What matters to us is that he made us possible. So the people who live on Mars 200 years from now won't care whether we went to Mars to look for life or to be an economic stimulus or to show up the Chinese. What they'll care is that we did it. Ah, show up the Chinese. Okay. The Chinese have a space program, though some people were saying it's a fake, just like they said the lunar program was a fake. But, okay, the Chinese, you know, it's almost sounding like Buck Rogers, the original Buck Rogers novel, Armageddon 2419, where Anthony Buck Rogers awakens from this suspended animation, finding that we have, I guess, the Americans and the Orientals locked in warfare against each other. So are we looking to other countries? Are we looking to the Chinese, the Indians, to conquer space ahead of us now that we've kind of let it slide by? Well, if we continue to slide, someone else will do it. And the human future in space will have a different stamp. And um, they won't speak English, just like we don't speak Turkish. Okay, because it was the Western Europeans that did the colonization of the New World, not the Muslims, not the Poles, not the Indians, not the Chinese. Uh, and you could think that's good, you could think that's bad, but that's how it is. And if we, I mean, if you want to put your stamp on the future, you have to have children in one form or another, either physical children or uh, intellectual children through spreading your ideas, uh, and societies, same way. The society that first establishes human colonies on Mars will be the one that puts the greatest stamp on the form of human civilization that develops on Mars, and I believe worlds beyond. Question for you, Robert. On page 194, there's a funny little illustration of the founding of the Free Martian Republic. Can you tell us, I, we, we can easily recognize you over in the middle right part of the frame, who else is part of this uh, founding committee? Okay, uh, this is a, a, there's a lot of funny pictures in the book, How to Live on Mars. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. um, and uh, this is an illustration of the founding of the Martian Republic. And um, most, though not all, these people um, are, are people who are, some of them are known to the general public, some of them are just known to uh, the space community. But over on the far left, we have Carl Sagan. Standing next to him is Robert Heinlein. Mm, I, was, I was hoping to see him included in there, yeah. All right. Then next to Robert Heinlein is Penelope Boston, one of the founders of the Mars Underground back in the 1980s. Next to her is Cal Stoker, also a founder of the Mars Underground. Next to her is the artist's daughter. Um, <laughs> then peering in the doorway in the back is Arthur Clark. Then there's me wearing a Greek fisherman's cap. There is uh, Christopher McKay in the chair. Uh, in the, um, he is uh, sort of the, the grand old man of the Mars Underground. In the background, looking at us, um, a woman is uh, Jamie Lutton, to whom this book is dedicated, the owner of a used bookstore in Seattle, who was, um, 
she read a lot of the drafts of the book and commented on them, so I felt she should be there. The uh, guy with the dark hair looking at Jamie is uh, another uh, friend of the author's children. Um, then standing next to him is Ray Bradbury, mm-hmm. the author of the Martian Chronicles. And then finally we have the goat. Uh, there's a standing <laughs> joke, running joke in this book about goats on Mars. That has to do with the fact that in the 1980s, NASA did a study on what livestock would be most suitable for space colonies, and they came up with goats because goats are very omnivorous and they're a convenient size. Uh, they're big enough to give you some decent meat, but they're small enough that you could launch them, you know, to the moon or Mars. It's not like launching a cow, okay, you know. Uh, and so that was their idea. But while I'm city-born and bred, I lived a substantial part of my life in a rural area where there are goats. And let me tell you, you don't want your goats in a Mars colony because goats will eat anything. Absolutely. They'll eat your walls. They'll get your goat. So the idea of goats running rampant in a Mars Oh, boy. I think, but, I think we're descending here, folks. No, no, no. I'm but see, sure. what makes sense to me, you see, if you have goats, then, and, and, and Robert, I mean, you, you make the point. Goats in many ways are very useful, except there are certain behavioral aspects of them that would present a problem. But to me, that seems like the perfect candidate for something to play some breeding games with. I mean, people have been doing it with dogs long enough. You can actually uh, get certain types of behavior out of animals by crossbreeding. seems to me like this would be a perfect candidate to be an animal that, that would be genetically altered to have the, the desirable attributes of a goat, but basically breed out the negative attributes. Well, I wanted to use it more as the kind of illustration of the kind of mistake that bureaucracies can make when they just... <laughs> okay do paper studies in order that this is how it's going to be. Okay. Listen, you mentioned very briefly a Mars underground. Yeah. Would you explain what that's all about? Yeah. Um, okay, you know, in the 1960s, NASA was moving out. They were going to be on the moon by 1970, Mars by 1980, you know, Saturn by 1990, Alpha Centauri by the year 2000. They were happening, Okay. And, of course, we did accomplish the first part of that program. We did reach the moon by 1970. But then the Nixon administration shut the whole thing down. NASA did have plans to reach Mars by 1981, but by 1972, the whole post-Apollo continued onward plan had been canceled. And this was a disappointment to many of my generation who grew up during Apollo and were looking forward to taking part in the grand human exploration and settlement of the solar system. Well, what happened was, in 1981, by that time, NASA had settled down into its idea that its purpose was not to explore space, but to run the shuttle program to launch satellites into Earth orbit for commercial and national security purposes. And that was practical. This other stuff about going to the moon and Mars, these are the dreams of youth, and we should just forget it. Okay? We're older and wiser now. Well, there was a bunch of young people, college students at the University of Colorado at Boulder at that time, who were not prepared to accept that, and they called themselves the Mars Underground, and they held a conference called the Case for Mars in 1981 without any official approval from anybody, but about 80 people showed up, and they published the proceedings discussing how we could go to Mars and why Mars should be our goal, and on the basis of that, they created quite a bit of excitement, or a fair amount anyway, and they were able to hold a second Case for Mars conference three years later, and 250 people showed up, including some somewhat influential people, and in 1987, 
a thousand people showed up. It was about that time that I joined the Mars on the ground. I'd been reading their stuff earlier, but that was the first time I actually came. And Carl Sagan came, and Thomas Ping, the former NASA administrator, came. And this really was the thing that launched this movement that has been campaigning to make Mars our goal ever since. And so these people, Kristen Kay, Kyle Soka, Penelope Lawson, were really three of the core people of that group. And so they're honored by being shown in this um, painting of the founding of the Free Martian Republic. Wow. So there we yeah, go. Someone else, you know, someone else who was at uh, at least one of the Mars uh, underground conferences. You're not going to want to hear it. Who? Richard Hubland. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Well, nobody's perfect. Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380, 800-715-4380, or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com, 1-800-715-4380. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? This session, we're talking about Mars, about going to Mars, about a little bit about the possibility of life on Mars, with Robert Zubrin, author of How to Live on Mars, and our friend Mac Tony's. All right, I'm going to raise the H question here. This fellow, Hoagland, I assume you've heard of him, Robert? Yeah. All right. Does he come out of a real background? At one point, he was a advisor, a science advisor to Walter Cronkite. That was true? He has uh, some scientific background. I'm not exactly sure what it is. But he's made his name by being... Uh, a proponent of the belief that the uh, that the certain rock formations on Mars that photograph from orbit that they look like a face, so it's called the face on Mars. He says, well, that is a statue built by aliens on Mars. Okay. Now, it is true that the that rock formation does in fact look like a face, and there it is. Uh, but there are. Rock formations on Earth, you know, for instance, down here in Colorado Springs, there's a rock formation called John F. Kennedy Mountain, because if you look at it from a certain angle, it looks exactly like John F. Kennedy in profile. And we have Castle Rock, which looks like a castle. And down in San near Santa Fe, there's a, a, a rock that looks like a camel. And, 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 and up near Boulder, there's one that looks like an Indian chief. And it would be surprising, frankly, given the number of photographs that we've taken of Mars from orbit, that we would not find some formations that looked very much like, um, you know, faces or other interesting things like that. So I disagree with Hoagland. I think it is a natural rock formation. Uh, but his position is that 
he thinks it's, it's evidence of aliens, which I don't personally believe. But the best way to resolve it is just to go there and check it out. So as long as we get there, whatever it yep. is that gets us there, you're, you're happy with. So, uh, Robert, would you go there? In a heartbeat. How did I know you'd say that? I was mouthing the words. I'm serious, Robert. As you were about to say, I mouthed the words. I have no psychic power. Psychotic, yes, but not psychic at all. Although, you know, but I felt you'd say, I think I'd go in a heartbeat, too. Before I get too old, I want to go to Mars. I mean, if we can have, what's his name, H.W. back there going, jumping out of planes at 85 years old, certainly nobody on the show is too old to go to Mars. Well, well now I have a question about that. Being a, someone who doesn't really have uh, children, I don't, have, not really have, I don't have children, I have a lovely girlfriend, uh, her kids are cool, but I don't have a family. Robert, are, are you someone with a family? Uh, yeah, I have a family. Okay. So you would go there, I assume, if you could take your family with you, correct? Um, yeah, but, you know... I hate to put you on the spot like uh, that. I'm just curious. I would go if I had to go alone. Mrs. Zubrin, are you listening? No, but yeah. that... Um, well, uh, the, because you only live once, uh, to have a chance to do something of immortal purpose in terms of expanding uh, the horizon of the human race, that's something not to be turned down under any circumstances. Now, you, you, you paint the picture in the book that the early, developer, the, the early settlers of Mars had a pretty rough time. So we're assuming, when I say, would you go, when I ask that, I'm, I'm talking about in, in, in a context where you'd be among the first wave. So you, you, you've thought that out quite a bit. Have you thought about, well, here's a question for you. I mean, how long have you been thinking about this, Robert? When did your interest in this really start? 1957. Give us some of the context for that. Well, I'm not to throw out science fiction references every every five minutes, but it's kind of the same uh, kind of the same soul searching that in the movie Contact, where Jodie Foster gets the chance to be the the one person uh, to board this this alien vessel, uh, not knowing what on earth is going to is going to happen to her, and she goes. She makes the decision uh, for for much the same reason that Robert just said, and uh, well, it also. <laughs> I just pledge not to make science fiction references anymore, but also uh, in a similar vein, um, Close Encounters at the very end where Richard Dreyfuss uh, uh, boards the mothership. Yeah, that's a good and, point. Uh, I always sympathize with those two characters, Richard Dreyfuss's character and Jodie Foster's character, because I, too, would, in their, in their circumstances, do exactly the same thing. Well, so that brings up another really, uh, I think, kind of a curious point. When you, you talked about, Robert, the, the idea that, you know, the, a lot of what you get into in the book sounds like, the western frontier in the United States at a time when it was very dangerous. It was also very violent. So, uh, and in the in the book you paint a picture where you're, you're kind of constantly throwing in this idea of, you know, if you do certain things, then you have all these extracurricular activities that you can use to enrich yourself. And there are some fairly funny inferences there, especially when it gets down to the agricultural side of it. Um, do you perceive that the uh, the instinct for survival would keep things from getting too violent? Because certainly in, in terms of the, 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 the American Western frontier, one of the defining features was a certain lawlessness. Is that the way that you perceive this would also play out on Mars, or would there be more pragmatic issues that would come into play? There would be a certain amount of lawlessness. Look, out, but on the Western frontier, there were also certain things. For instance, these Western towns, which are made of... Uh, 
flak board with completely inadequate fire departments. Anyone who wanted to burn one of these towns down could have done so. Mm-hmm. And yet we don't find criminals burning down Denver or, you know, Salt Lake City or Carson City. Yeah, it would be the equivalent of yeah. cutting off your nose to spite your face. Yeah. Right. But yet people do um, certainly engage in activities for personal gain, and some of them are willing not only to defy laws, but uh, uh-huh. ethics to do so. Um <laughs> Uh, more are willing to defy laws, uh, frankly. But the, you know, as I mentioned, the book I was reading was Twins Roughing It. And, and, and uh, when you have a situation like this where uh, people have a chance to write their own rules, they will. And they'll do it in all kinds of ways. And uh, so you have a lot of funny stuff going on in this book with uh, people making money, um, you know, going out and claiming some mining claim and then. Uh, in exchange for a piece of the action, getting some scientists to validate that they can, in fact, find rare earth minerals there, and then they can just sell the claim off to someone else because now it has some value, and he'll sell to someone else for still more. And uh, whether or not this mine ever has any platinum in it is totally irrelevant. They're just buying and selling the claim. But guess what? This is how the stock market works. Sure. Well, speculation drives so much of our society. Uh, and um, so some of this is meant to be a depiction on what might go out on Mars, and some of it is also simply satire discussing contemporary trends on Earth. Hmm. So ultimately, well, there's the old saying, crime pays. So, uh, so I assume well, crime that... Crime pays and, 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 well, salesmanship also pays. Uh, let me read you a couple of... Okay, let me read you one selection here from the terraforming section. He goes through the first part of the book, uh, of the chapter, he goes through all the technology and and how terraforming Mars could be done. Okay, So he explains the science of it. And then he also explains what it means philosophically, bringing a world to life and the grandeur of it. But then he gets down to business. So the real question is, how do you make money off of all this? Okay, And um, you don't have to be directly involved in the terraforming program to make money from it. The mere fact that it is ongoing promises to increase real estate values nearly everywhere on Mars. That said, some place will increase in value much more than others. So all you need to do to make a fortune is to grab the right properties and then resell them to Saks who aren't as quick as you to get it on a good thing. Please note the fact that most of the effects of the terraforming effort won't actually occur for at least another century is irrelevant. Since everyone knows that the extraordinary physical improvements are on the way, market values for selected properties are already picking off, and many more can be expected to soar, provided things are handled correctly. As an important example of the above, consider the potential sales value of future beachfront property. On Earth, properties that front bodies of water sell for a high premium, and the same will obviously be true on Mars once the terraforming program brings back into being our planet's many ancient ponds, lakes, rivers, seas, and oceans. Now, it may be pointed out that on Earth it is known precisely where the shore of a lake or an ocean actually is, whereas we don't know how high sea level will rise on Mars, so a property that might be a future beachfront uh, with equal likelihood could end up far from shore or worse yet, underwater. While this may sound like a problem, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, it opens up huge opportunities since it means that any property on the slope of a basin or valley can be marketed as future beachfront. All that is needed to do so is to obtain an appropriate expert opinion identifying the site in question as being adjacent to the definitive location of the future shoreline. Such opinions, backed up by unquestionable computer calculations, can be readily obtained from many noteworthy and highly 
highly credentialed members of the Mars Authority Terraforming Directorate scientific staff in exchange for a small piece of the action. <laughs> and then there. So, uh, oh yes, yeah, so, so you can see on page 155 the illustration. Wow. <laughs> going to it now. Going to it now. Okay. Yeah. You see an old hand Martian there in an old style spacesuit pitching some two newbies in the latest style spacesuits. And he's standing in front of a piece of Martian desert, but there's also a billboard there saying Whispering Dunes, Future Beachfront Properties, lots available. And it shows the same scenery with an ocean filling up the basin with surf and bathing beauties and all the rest. Um, so, so you become rich selling a dream, even if that dream is never realized, or the dream is, at the very minimum, realized 100 years in the future. Right. But, you know, that's part of how the West was settled, too. People would sell land saying, this is where the railroad's going to come through. In many cases, it did. In some few cases, it did. In some cases, it wouldn't have, but once someone owned the land, then they had an incentive to build a railroad there. Okay? And so forth. And fortunes were made and fortunes were lost. But at the end of it, we created a continental nation. Well, of course, all of this is in the context, when we talk about loss on Earth, we're still talking about a planet where you can readily get uh, women, chocolate, pomegranates, and all that good stuff. So, so Mac, you're willing to go to Mars where there's this pretty much equivalent system of deception in place, except you have all the dangers of Mars, which is, True. you know, and, and Robert, you put that forward in here, you know, with the deflating home. You come home to find your home deflated, which uh, it's, it's a great little illustration uh, where you see what, what's happened while this guy was gone and there was a structural breach in his inflatable home. So, so even, you know, question to you, Mac, even with the prospect of no chocolate, no pomegranates, no coffee. <laughs> no coffee? Uh, no coffee. Well, I, I, I'd find a way around that is what I'd do. I'd smuggle some components, and I'd open up a coffee shop on Mars. And I think I'd, have a, I think I'd find a, a large clientele. Starbucks of Barsoom. Oh, you'd grow the beans in Martian soil, and you'd find some way to do it hydroponically or something. And uh, I bet you could, uh, in the, with the genetic technology that would probably be going on, because you'd be working on genetically altering plants to expedite the terraforming process, something could be done with... Uh, with coffee beans, perhaps. I'm, I'm obviously this guy here, but I find the point is I think people would find workarounds around this stuff. Stuff would be smuggled from Earth invariably right. in many ingenious ways. Robert makes many allusions to that uh, in the book <laughs> that there is I can a tremendous. <laughs> yeah, so, I, yeah, I've read other of, of, of Robert's books, but not this one. But I, it's definitely on my list. If I could like then I'd get it. It's a good read. So, so Robert, here's a question for you. What's the worst gig on Mars? The worst. What is the absolute worst thing you can be involved in doing on Mars? Well, you know, doing janitorial work for the Mars Authority. Uh, you, you basically don't want to be working for someone else. Okay. Uh, you may have to do it at the beginning in order to get your legs and your bearings, but you've got a wide-open situation. And just as when people first came to America... Um, you know, they may have initially had to take work for someone else um, in order to put together enough capital to get their own horse and their own gun and their own axe and go out into the frontier. But there they could claim a stake and clear some land and have their own farm. Uh, and uh, because here you have a whole planet available for claiming. And so uh, you want to be there on the frontier working for yourself. Uh, you don't want to be working for the authorities. Um, there is some discussion of crime on Mars. Uh, 
um, that is, if you have authorities, you will also have crime. Both so, evil crime, but also crime that is simply designed to get around the um, barriers imposed by authorities and the various dictates, smugglers and, 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 and such other people carrying out unauthorized activities that actually serve a purpose that the public needs. Uh, but ultimately, that's not where the, the future is either. Uh, it's in entrepreneurial activity. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack. of the Rockaway. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack. of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Hey, this is Jeff Richman. You're listening to David Biedney and Gene Steinberg on the Paracast. And just between you and me, I think these guys are a cult, so keep your eye on them. Robert Zubrin and Mac Tony's joining us. We're talking about Mars, the past, the present, the future, the future where humankind goes to Mars, and it's like the Wild West all over again, a new frontier. Personally, I really like the emphatically libertarian vibe. <laughs> the Zubrin days, and also uh, it's also to be found in uh, uh, mentioned earlier uh, uh, Gerard K. O'Neill's writings uh, has the same kind of um, uh, the, the same the same sort of very uh, free um, free range flavor. So uh, what what we've got here the 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 scenario that's painted is one where you have highly entrepreneurial people who are certainly not adverse to very extreme risk taking. Going to a planet where there is, I guess by the benefit of time, uh, an established bureaucracy, the, the Mars Authority, um, and that bureaucracy, what do you think, Robert, can, can, you, can you not have them in this scenario, or is it, is, do we then come to the determination that you have to have a bureaucracy in order for anything to, to happen? Well, once again, the analogy here is to the American experience. Look, the British were absolutely necessary for the family, the British government and the British Navy and the British Army was absolutely necessary for the founding of the British colonies in North America 
couldn't have happened without them. Absolutely not. Uh, to protect them from the Spanish, from the Indians, from the French, to provide the first currency uh, and, and, and so forth, and the first set of laws. At a certain point, this uh, structure became too limiting. The British had too limited a vision as to what the American colonies were all about. They thought the American colonies existed for the profit of England, okay? Whereas the American colonies saw themselves existing for themselves. You know, if you have a Mars authority, involved in creating the Mars colony, and initially the Mars base is there to do scientific research. Okay, so if your priority is doing scientific research, what do you want to have children for? They only get in the way. But people want to have children, okay? And people want to have a whole bunch of institutions that have nothing to do with the, the mission of the base as originally conceived by the bureaucratic authorities. And people want to have a host of, of, of luxuries and, and, and so forth that have no place in the bureaucratic mindset as to what they should need or want. And um, so this, the speaker, the narrator in the book, has a kind of uh, a mixed attitude towards the Mars Authority. There's some things they do that he likes. He likes the terraforming program. It's great. Uh, they've got all this money and resources and they're terraforming the planet and what could be better in terms of what it's going to do to real estate values. Okay. On the other hand, many of the things of, of, of the Mars Authority uh, in attempting to regulate uh, your activities, he does not like. So the um, so what you have the, the Mars um, as depicted in this book is still a Mars where a Mars authority exists, but you can clearly see that the colonists are beginning to come to understand that sooner or later they're going to have to break free of it. Now, there's another very interesting uh, organization or collective that you bring up, and I would hope you'd explain this: the Sisterhood. Please tell That's us organized about crime. You know, uh, the... the um, Cosa Nostra on Mars, huh? Yes. Um, they have, um, you know, <laughs> yes, it, it, for instance, if you look at the history of America, you find that organized crime at various times is, is controlled by various clannish groups. For instance, at one point it was the Irish, and then it was the Italians, and it was some other groups. Uh, on Mars, it's women. They control organized crime. But they also serve a beneficial purpose uh, in, for instance, uh, in arranging for smuggling activities, uh, bringing goods beyond the purview of the Mars Authority, you know, including things like nuclear fuel that the Mars Authority has some questions about Mars, Martians having access to, but they want it, they need it, um, and other things, arranging for uh, uh, Shipments to outlying settlements at lower than uh, official prices of the transport and so forth. Um, but yes, yeah, so the, the sisterhoods uh, are there. They are a somewhat of a mixed bag. Uh, although, while he advises the immigrants to steer clear of them, he has a fairly friendly relationship with them. Well, yeah, there's the little note. Handy. Yeah. They can certainly come in handy at times, and certainly you don't want to cross them. Of course, then we would go to the next logical conclusion. There would be a Martian uprising, because the Mars Authority, well, it's run by those Earthlings. You know, they tax us mm -hmm. too high. You know, it's like the American Revolution played out all over again on another planet. So is that the next logical scenario here? Well, uh, yes, and, and that's, I mean, look, if you look at that picture of the founding of the Marsh, Free Martian Republic, you should recognize that it is a ripoff of the famous picture of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Absolutely. The poses of all the people are the same. 
Well, getting back to the sisterhood for a minute, explain to our listeners who haven't read the book, Robert, why women? How does this, how does this go down? How did it evolve? The, um, well, it actually, uh, you start talking about it in the discussion of the, uh, the chapter on what rovers to choose, what, what vehicles to choose. And he basically says, um, if you can't lift it, don't buy it. Okay, so you don't want a land yacht. You don't want an SUV-sized pressurized rover. An all-terrain vehicle type quad might be the thing. Uh, they're, they're nimble. They're capable of rough terrain. Uh, but an alternative are motorcycles. And women, because in general they have less upper body strength, typically veer towards motorbikes. And this decision made out of necessity, however, opened up opportunities to them because they had vehicles that were capable of moving faster than those of the Mars Authority. So a whole range of informal uh, business activities uh, became open to them and they moved into that niche. So that kind of happy accident gave them an economic advantage that put them in a position of economic power and, and therefore political power on the planet. Yes, but in particular, the niche being activities banned uh, by the Mars Authority. Yeah. Hmm. We, we assume, of course, in this What the Mars Authority would call crime, what the narrator of the book calls informal business activities. Right, okay. We assume in this scenario that Earth is alone, that Earth colonizes Mars, and there are no Martians, there are no space people who will come along and say, you know, we like Mars, we're going to take it from you. So we already have seen an indication, forgetting about whether you believe they're visiting us now, which is obviously a common scenario, one of the subjects we discuss regularly on the Paracast. But does that create a possibility in your mind that if not now, by then, extraterrestrials will come along and maybe decide that this real estate looks good for us? Uh, well, that's certainly that's not the picture in how to live on Mars. Uh, do I think that more generally? No, I don't. Uh, I think the distances involved in interstellar space make interstellar invasions not practical. The defense always has a tremendous advantage because you have your whole planet of resources to combat a few ships that can travel across interstellar space. When people, in, in the scenario that you paint, Robert, when people go to Mars, uh, why would they come back to Earth? Well, uh, only if they're failures. If they can't hack it on Mars, they may retreat to Earth. Just like some immigrants to America, even today, eventually say, "This is I can't deal with this, I have to go back. Okay? But most immigrants to America stay. Right. Because the quality... Go back. Well, the perception is that the quality of life overall is higher. That perception, of course, based on what your expectations are uh, and, and, and the level of adaptation. So... Um, I guess part of your assumption here is that uh, two or three generations into being on Mars, the children of that planet perhaps wouldn't even have a reference point to want to return to Earth because Mars is all they know. Is that correct? Well, certainly uh, several generations on, they wouldn't want to come to Earth, especially since Earth has triple the gravity of Mars. Who would ever want to live on Earth? Hmm. Hmm. If mankind becomes accustomed to living at a fraction of our gravity... Coming back to Earth could be a pretty difficult thing, right? Um, yes. Uh, it would be unpleasant. You wouldn't want to live uh, there. I mean, or, or even, you know, I was born in uh, Brooklyn. 
and which obviously is close to sea level. And another one. I hear another. Gene and I are both Brooklyn boys, Robert. Right. And Mac, I don't think Seattle, okay, which is close to sea level. But now I live in Colorado, uh, which is at an elevation. And whenever I go to a place that is at sea level, I don't feel completely comfortable. The air seems too mm-hmm. thick. Uh, the uh, And whenever I go to Europe, I get sick. Because, um, you know, I mean, I, I was living in Indian Hills, Colorado, a small town. Um, you don't encounter that many people, and so you, you're not bombarded with uh, uh, a large number of disease organisms all the time. And you go to London and ride the subway, or the tube, as they call it, and uh, there's millions of people around you breathing out microbes that you're not accustomed to. Uh, and, and so I always get sick. Um, so, uh, yes, if you move someplace else, you adapt to that new place. And you don't go back to the old place. I mean, I've adapted living in Arizona for 15 years to a life without snowfall. I've adapted to a life when temperatures don't descend below 20 degrees or 10 degrees. And going back to the East Coast might be rather difficult for me. Whereas if David came here, he'd be a culture shock. Well, yeah, with humans, so many of us, what, some large percentage of human beings end up within a 50-mile radius of where they were born. Uh, I've been uh, all different places. I mean, I've lived a variety of places in my life. But in my middle age, I ended up pretty much within a 50-mile radius of where I was born, especially after having lived in California. So one of the things that we have to factor into this is that certainly, and it sounds, Robert, like you've done this in the book, is that the, the, the idiosyncrasies of human character are going to play roles that in some ways are are. are are kind of ex- not unusual, you know, uh, but in some other ways would be rather unexpected. Um, there are certain aspects of life that you depict on Mars that kind of make sense, but then there are others that were, it, it is a little unusual, and uh, there are things that you basically can't anticipate. I mean, based on what we understand now, and also, you know, I keep coming back to uh, this idea that maybe things in a scientific sense will change between now and the next hundred years that will make this all more possible. I mean, we look at where we were a hundred years ago to where we were, where we are now, I think it would have been very difficult to predict many things. And I think that if we project that a hundred years from now, certainly in, in terms of things like genetic engineering, it's very hard, I think, to predict where we will be in a hundred years. And I'm saying this in, in the defense of the idea that maybe this scenario that you're depicting here, where you're presenting lots of obstacles, perhaps things will be even more easily attainable within 100 years because of unforeseen advances that we cannot predict or project from or extrapolate from with our current level of understanding of where we're at now. I agree. Hey, that does it. <laughs> Seriously, we're just about out of time, but we want to thank, first of all, Mac Tonys, author of books that include... After the Martian Apocalypse. And then we have Robert Zubrin, who, by the way, is Dr. Robert Zubrin, Ph.D., but he didn't prod us on that to call him Dr. Zubrin, so we appreciate that. And he is author of How to Live on Mars, but also such books as The Case for Mars, The Plan to Settle the Red Planet, and Why We Must. And that book came out 13 years ago. 
And maybe How to Live on Mars is kind of the sequel after we've settled on Mars. This is what happens. Did you look at it that way, seriously, Robert, that maybe this, having written that book about why we have to get there, this is what's going to happen when we arrive after we're there for a few decades? Well, it, perhaps it's, it's looking backward. <laughs> Edward Bellamy, yeah. Right. Excellent. That's well, thank you, Dr. Zuberman. We really appreciate it. And, and thank you, Mac, for coming on. We always love having you on the show and always appreciate your viewpoint on these odd topics we discuss on the Paracast. Well, this is, this is very educational. All right. My pleasure. And thanks to all of you, to you, Mac, and to you folks, Gene, David. Uh, this is great. Thank you, Dr. Zuberman. We appreciate it. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.